Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the uh, Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, Stephanie Lynch is who I'm talking to today. Today, she's a PhD researcher at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, uh, in microbiology. I've interviewed probably 20 people from La Trobe. They're like an endless source of great, uh, great scientists to talk to. So Stephanie's research focuses on phage therapy, which is great as a novel therapeutic for, uh, I guess, a, uh, a canine related issue. So we're going to talk about that and uh, skin infections and bacteriophages and all kinds of good stuff. So Stephanie, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me a bit about your research. So what, what's the focus of it and what got you into it? Yeah, so um, this actually started in my bachelor, I suppose. So I did animal and veterinary as my bachelor, as I'm always, I've am i always loved animals, been very passionate about their health and welfare. So after my bachelor's, I did an honours year, which is a intensive year in a research lab, looking at phage therapy for dairy cow mastitis. And so after this, I kind of just fell in love with research. And I felt like doing research was a happy medium because I got some of the research and also got to interact with some of the animals as well. So this led me to do my PhD in phage therapy for as a novel therapeutic for canine pyoderma, which is a skin infection in dogs. So uh, phage therapies that's using viruses that prey on bacteria, applying them somehow and that will stop the bacteria instead of an antibiotic. Is that what you mean? Yes, yep. So phages, bacterial viruses that recognize specific bacteria and they, yeah, when they infect them, they inject their DNA, take over the um, bacterial host machinery. So yeah, um, tell me, uh, before we start, we'll go real basic. Tell me about phages. What are they, you know, in case people don't know, and how do they work? Yeah, sure. So phages are bacterial-specific viruses. Um, so that means that they recognize specific bacteria. And when they recognize the bacteria, they attach to the bacterial host surface and inject their DNA. They then take over the bacterial host machinery to replicate this DNA, and this creates hundreds of new phage progeny, which then burst out or lyse the bacterial cells, so causing bacterial lysis. So that's kind of the mechanism as, or like underpins how we could use them as a therapeutic, isolating specific virus bacteriophages for specific bacteria to kill them, I suppose. Well, I mean, what's common, I guess, is antibiotics. So why are they apparently inferior to phage therapy potentially? What are some of the dynamics of antibiotics that phages could do better? Yeah, so I think the most prominent um, thing that kind of jumps out to me is that phages are very specific um, or they you can make them quite broad, but um, generally they're quite specific to a certain species of bacteria. So you're not getting that broad spectrum effect of antibiotics and disrupting the host microbiota or uh, microbiome, I suppose. So I think that's one that really stands out for me. Yeah, antibiotic is a small molecule, a drug. Uh, what kind of defenses have you observed that bacteria you know, put up or create to antibiotics that make them not useful? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not something that I've personally researched, but um, I know we did learn a little bit about it in undergrad and reading papers. It's obviously important in terms of using phages as well. So I think 
changing their cell wall is one of the main ones. And I think that becomes like especially important for using phages as well, because the phages actually use the host cell receptors to attach to. So if they're changing, um, it's obviously important to recognize this in terms of resistance for both antibiotics and phage. And you're focusing on skin conditions or any condition that affects uh, dogs or certain animals, or is it just skin? Um, so that's a good question. So the bacteria that I work on is called Staphylococcus pseudintermediates, and the most prominent infection it causes in dogs is known as canine pyoderma, the skin infection. Um, so it's the causative agent in up to 93% of um, canine pyoderma cases. But interestingly, I just put out a review on this. It also causes or is involved in numerous infections throughout the dog. So in the respiratory, reproductive, urinary tract, as well as ear infections as well. So and one of the great things about phage therapy is that we can formulate it in different in different ways so that the same phage could be used for the skin, but also be used systemically for other infections uh, more internally, I suppose. How do you know what, uh, how do you culture bacteria so that you can observe the phages that interact with them? Like how many, how many phages do you think a given bacteria has on average? And how do you put them in an environment where you can see which phages will naturally arise? Yeah, that's a good question. How many phages a bacteria has? I think that would be endless. But um, the way that I isolate my phages, so I actually collected samples from dogs, so both uh, skin swabs and their fur samples to try and isolate these specific um, phages. And so that was quite difficult in itself. It took a while to find them. So I'm sure there are multiple, but you just have to find the right sources of where to find the specific phages for the, the bacteria. Sorry, I forgot the other part of your question. <laughs> Oh, I, I was just saying, so your estimate is that hundreds, maybe thousands of different phages could prey upon any given bacteria? I mean, people have been isolating for years and continually find new ones. So it's, yeah, it could be endless, I assume. Well, how do you know what, what phages are there? So you take a skin swab from a dog or some fur, and what do you do to process the sample? And how do you know, how do you sequence and figure out, oh, okay, this, this genetic material is from this phage, this from that. How do you know how many phages there are and what they're constituted of? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So um, for me, I have clinical isolates of the Staphylococcus um, bacteria. So usually what I do is I create a bacterial lawn of that um, bacteria sample. And then with the fur samples or the um, skin swabs that I have, I process them. So kind of um, dilute out anything that we don't want by filtering the samples, making sure that filters that we use will retain the phages um, and then I just kind of the very first experiment that we do is just spotting on those samples so the fur or the skin swabs onto the bacterial lawn and so after incubating that overnight we can see clear clearing spots within the um, bacterial lawn and that um, generally starts to indicate that we may have isolated phage and so from there we can go on and look at it under um, transmission electron microscopy to various uh, different diluting techniques that we can see like plaques which are individual phages yeah and the sequencing kind of follows from there so we can when you process the plaques usually different phages have different plaque morphology so that's one way of telling how many phages you have which is really neat um, and then you can sequence the individual plaques themselves to um, hopefully see that you have pure phages in your sequencing how do you know which phages are you know lysogenic or latent versus uh, lytic yeah, that's a really good point because 
Although my the phages that I isolated in the lab show lysis on bacterial lawns and um, show to lyse the bacteria that I'm interested in, when we sequenced these phages, we did see that they were known as lysogenic. So what this means is that they contain genes. That means that they can integrate within the bacterial genome and they don't cause lysis, but they can revert to the lytic life cycle. So this is probably, I think the very first way you'd find this out is by sequencing them. And this is how we did it. And we saw these, um, a lysogeny module containing, um, yeah, the genes associated for lysogeny. Is there any way to do an analysis of this particular bacteria you're studying and look at its outer membrane and try to characterize like all the different receptors and ligands and things like that that are on its surface? So you could say, mm, okay, these are, you, you literally can see like the attack surface, you know, like, oh, okay, these this type of proteins that it expresses could be targets from this phage and these kind of receptors could be that phage, et cetera. Yeah, I definitely think that would be very interesting. It's not something that I've done. And just as you were talking about it, I know there's a, a lab a couple of doors down that seems to be looking into um, the different phages and their different receptors by doing this sequencing and um, modeling of the outer membrane. So yeah, I think that's very interesting um, research coming out, but it's not something that I've looked at specifically. So you're identifying phages that cause plaques, aka they're lysing the bacteria like in a in a dish environment, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Okay, and then once you do that, what do you do? You you try to make an isolate of that phage and then put it in with a new set of bacteria to see if it like wipes them out? Yeah, yeah. So once I've isolated a specific phage on one bacterial strain, I then um so I have a subset of fifty-nine clinical strains of Staphylococcus intermediate. So these were isolated from all different canine infections. Um, so then once I have that isolated phage, I can check its like host range, we call it. So how many of those strains it can lies, how broad it is. Because although we want it to be specific to the bacteria, we also want it to be broad across that species. But you can, I'm sure you've seen that a lot of people make them into phage cocktails, which sounds funner than it is, which pretty much means adding multiple different phages to try and get the broadest host range across the species. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, what have you noticed? Do individual phages uh, kill well or these cocktails work better? And, and if so, why? Yeah, that's a really good question. So throughout my PhD, I isolated four bacteriophages. One is extremely good on its own. It lyses up to 50, or when I say extremely good, it lyses 59% of the Staphylococcus intermediate strain. And the other three were quite moderate. But when I added them all together, I saw an increase in their host rangeability. So it's not something that I know exactly the reason for in my case, but I guess it would be interesting to go back and look at, as you were saying before, the different receptors and see if these phages have different receptors and that's why they're able to infect more strains. So adding them all together, you get that broader spectrum of receptor binding. Yeah, it's very interesting though. 
Well, the phages may not be acting alone, even though there may be two different types of phages. Perhaps one binds to the membrane and then another uses that to enter when otherwise it couldn't. What if they work together? Are you able to ascertain that? That's another really good point as well. And I think that definitely could be happening. And I think that's what's very interesting about some research lately that has used antibiotics and phages in combination and seen that bacteria that was originally antibiotic resistant to a certain antibiotic becomes sensitive when the phage is added together. So yeah, that might be the mechanism underpinning that. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Have you tried making a phage cocktail and then passaging it through, you know, let's say 10, 20 or 100 sets of the same bacteria and see if it evolves and becomes more effective or less effective? I personally haven't, but I have read some studies that have done that. And I think that's very interesting. So it seems to be that you can increase the host range ability of your phages by, as you said, culturing multiple times. And it kind of, yeah, increases the bacterial susceptibility to the phage. And I think that's very interesting rather than the, I guess, alternative where we're worried about resistance. Yeah. Yeah. How do, how um, effective do you think a cocktail of phages would be on, you know, naive bacteria that haven't been exposed to antibiotic versus ones that have? And do you try to tune it so that it can affect both or just, you know, is it better to rely for some reason, you know, using antibiotics first and then using phage because you know that the bacteria have been pushed in a certain direction of resistance, but that makes them weaker to the cocktail of phage. Like, which strategies have been tried? Which seem to work better? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really interesting point actually. Because I was just trying to think of my own strains that I have in my subset and which phages work better. So it seems that my phages definitely work better on the higher antibiotic resistance strains. So they've all the strains that have been isolated have been tested for their antibiotic resistance. And so the ones that are resistant to six or more antibiotics seem to be more susceptible to the phage. But this isn't something that I've done in vivo, but I know there are studies out there that have. So I think it's a very interesting point. And yeah, I I wonder, I think even in the veterinary sector, they would treat with antibiotics first to see if their goal, like their frontline treatment would work first. And then if not, I guess, especially now, it would be like an emergency use of phage therapy until they're more approved in Western medicine. And also, do you do you try to hit the sample with like a very high titer of phage or have you played with that to see if like the, the killing window gets shortened and is therefore more effective? Like like this cocktail that you found, it's like 59% effective. What titers did it work at? And if you have a very high one, again, does it work better because the killing is faster? Yeah, that's a very good point. So I've done this a little bit and something that's ha- like I'm kind of developing at the moment is a silkworm model for testing phage therapy trials, I suppose, before it goes in any further. And this is definitely something that I would like to look at. So with the cocktail, looking at different, I guess, yeah, concentrations of the phage with the bacteria um, and seeing which one is going to be most effective at increasing the survival rate of the silkworms that we're infecting. I guess it really, I think it's so dependent on, on each phage. They seem to all have a mind of their own and <laughs> act so differently. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, there may be, I'm sure there's some general principles that may apply to make the therapy more effective, you know. I mean, you know, what if, like, so this condition, does it, what, what does it cause in the dogs? Does it just a rash? Do they get fever? You know, the reason why I'm asking is like, I don't know, what if, if a certain condition causes fever, let's say, and then you do phage therapy, the phages would be operating in an environment that's, you know, let's say warmer than normal and inflamed. I wonder if that would help them act, if that would hinder them acting. And I know there's so many complicating factors, but uh, this particular condition you're studying in dogs, like what happens to them? If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So to start off with, yeah, it's just kind of, it starts off as a rash, I believe. So every case may be different depending on how they kind of evolved, but it starts off as a moderate rash and different factors can increase the severity. And yeah, I think definitely there would be um, fevers associated with that due to the infection. But I was going to add that um, I think it's very interesting when people are characterising phages that they characterise um, how stable they are in different conditions. So things such as pH, temperature, all those kind of things to, to see where it would be best. Is it going to be best if there's a fever or is the phage not stable at those temperatures? So definitely all things to be putting, like to keep in mind for the characterization of the different phages and the different formulations you use as well. Cause I guess that would, I guess, differ with what conditions you're using it for. Yeah. I mean, if the phage has any ability to be lysogenic or latent, you know, what if, what if the phage normally would kill, but the conditions are such that it goes into a latent, you know, or a lysogenic phase and it's, you think, oh, it's not working. The phage is still there, but you know they're monitoring the conditions, and they're not. They're, they're saying, all right, now's not the time to be lytic, based again on the microenvironment of the cells affected. That maybe you could push them in a direction where they would turn more lytic. Yes, and that's a very good point. That potentially the reason why that they're not very favorable for phage therapy. So it's very unlikely that lysogenic phages would be useful in phage therapy. So they kind of have to be engineered to. Um, I guess, edit out their lysogeny modules. But there is ways you can induce lysogenic phages to the lytic life cycle. So any kind of cell stress, really. So that antibiotics is one of them and UV, but obviously you can't do that in a dog, but it's very interesting, yeah. Has anyone tried to, um, you know, culture a dog with a skin rash, again, that has like naive bacteria of this type and deliberately add in some antibiotic-resistant bacteria and then hit it with phages? Because you know, maybe the resistant ones would, would transfer plasmids to the naive ones quickly, and then you wouldn't need to administer antibiotics, and then you could hit them with phage that would, would knock them out, experimentation there. Yeah, that would be very interesting. I don't know if ethics would approve that, but it would be interesting. And I mean, it would be really nice to see, like, monitor dogs that have had this condition for a while, if they haven't had antibiotics compared to if they had, and trying different treat- treatments on them. But um, I guess it would be a more longitudinal study. Um, over a long period of time so yeah but it's all very interesting and hopefully the field's moving because there is a lot of interest around um, canine pyoderma due to the antibiotic resistance so I'm very interested to see where the field's going and how I could be involved in that. Yeah and then also other bacteria that maybe metabolically partner with this particular bacteria you're looking at you know what, what are the metabolites produced by these bacteria what do they eat you know from other bacteria are they getting plasmids from other bacteria and phages, you know, in vivo that is modulating their resistance? Yeah, but that's not something that I've looked at, but I'm sure that there might be studies out there. It's not something that I've really read either about the metabolites, but that's very interesting and yeah, important to understand the bacterial physiology as well, I suppose. But it, yeah, it's not something that I've looked at. So what, what is the particular focus of what you're doing? You're just, are you trying different you know, cocktails and mixtures and seeing which one works better or like what's the specific focus of your work? Yeah, so the overall intention was to make a dermal cream for canine pyoderma, but we're um, looking at new avenues still in the realm of phage therapy, but not specific to phages. So tell me about your, your specific research that's ongoing and then, you know, do you have any new projects that are interesting to you that you can talk about as well? Yeah, sure. So the overall aim of my PhD to start with was to make a dermal um, topical cream 
for canine pyoderma using phages. But as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the phages that I've isolated are known as lysogenic. So they have the potential to enter this lysogeny and this isn't favorable for phage therapy, unfortunately. So what we are looking into next is uh, phage encoded enzymes or proteins known as endolysins. And these are enzymes or proteins that are responsible for bacterial lysis without the, without the phage. So this is something that's ongoing and quite new. So, but very exciting nonetheless. Okay. Like common treatments right now, is it just antibiotics or are there creams that, that are used and, you know, do they work? Under what conditions do they work? Like what's the current state of, of medicine for this condition for dogs? Yeah, so in a majority of the cases, antibiotics is the gold standard, both topical and systemic. But because it is such a huge issue, there has been a lot of research around alternatives such as shampoos, which seem to work quite well, but they dependent on the owner and they're usually quite um, intensive. So usually maybe up to like five baths a, a week and yeah, really relies on owner's compliance. There's also a little bit of research into natural oils. I'm trying to think what else I, because I wrote about some of them in my review. But um, yeah, so there is actually quite a, a large range of different therapies that people are looking into. And obviously it's very, it seems to be very case dependent as well, as you can imagine. So what, what are there any hypotheses you're testing right now that you think are close to giving you some insights or, you know, you're, you're more at the beginning stage and there's a lot to look at before you, you figure anything out? Yeah, so because I was the, like I kind of built up this project over the years, it is still quite new, I suppose. So we aren't at the tail end of it yet, but it has opened up a broad range of new things to look at. And um, Okay, well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? On Twitter as Steph, S-T-E-P-H-H underscore Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H. Um, I am trying to get more active on Twitter of sharing some phage research, but there are plenty of phage researchers on Twitter, which is really nice. It's become a bit more of a phage community on there. And hopefully I'll be publishing some more papers soon. So keep an eye out. Very good, Stephanie. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.